Good morning, everyone. My name is Danny Evans. It's my privilege to come to you with God's Word. The time to open up God's Word and worship Him through His Word today. And we're going to talk about motivation. Motivation. It's kind of funny. I'm talking about that today as I looked at the Scripture through the week. I mulled over this this passage. And normally I can start preparing early on in the week and writing stuff down. And, you know, it was Thursday and I still hadn't written anything down and I'm panicking. So I wasn't really motivated this week or something just wasn't happening. And it's kind of funny that the whole topic today is about motivation and motivation for others and, and really in ministry. And, and that's really, for me, that's my job is a motivator. You know, I have different titles. I'm a civil engineer and pastor and swim coach, but really overall my job title should be motivator. I'm at the city of Loveland. I'm a project manager and I manage various projects and I try to motivate our, our stormwater maintenance crew to go and do projects for me. And I try to motivate contractors to do projects for me. And this last week, obviously, it was very difficult. I, my motivation didn't work. I didn't even have motivation to get away from my own desk, let alone tell these guys to go out in the cold and try to start building something in the snow. And so that's part of my motivation. Also, I, I'm a swim coach at Windsor High School. And so I try to motivate these boys to jump in the water and, and to work hard and to show discipline and and try and work as hard as they can all through the season so that they see results at the end. And so a big part of my job as coach is motivator. And also in youth ministry, I try to motivate young people to spend time in the Word and to have quiet time with the Lord and then try to motivate them to uh, go out and share the gospel with other people. So the question today is, is what motivates you? For many people, they're motivated by money. And that's definitely true for my son. You know, we wanted him to uh, memorize Psalm 23, and $5 pretty much took care of that. He memorized it for a price. Get him to do anything, it's going to cost money. And so you parents understand that. When you want him to get to do something, money usually does the trick. Well, maybe you're motivated by encouraging words or recognition, or maybe you're just self-motivated. There's very many people that are that way. See, people are motivated for various reasons, but we're going to talk about today is answering the question, what motivates you for ministry? I know most of us here are not paid. We're volunteers. And so what motivates us in ministry when we're volunteers? I know many people at YWAM and New Life Church are asking themselves that question right now. They're saying, why should we stay in ministry? Is it worth it? Is it worth risking my life for this? Well, today we're going to look at what motivated Paul and his companions for ministry. Well, we're about halfway through chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. We've transitioned from the topic of heaven and our heavenly dwelling to the judgment seat of Christ. Last week we talked about what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God. He wants our obedience. He wants us Not just our outward appearance or sacrifices, but he wants inwardly. He wants our heart. He wants us to serve him because we want to. Want to give back to what so much he's given to us, not because we have to. Last week we talked about how obedience is pleasing to God. It's a sweet aroma. And with obedience comes reward. 
Next, we talked about the judgment seat and asked, what is the goal of this judgment? Is the goal for our rewards in heaven? Or is it to find out whether we're going to heaven or not, whether we'll be saved or not? And verse 10 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone, each one, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then we looked at the parable of the talents, and we asked, what is a talent? And basically, a talent is our opportunity on this earth to further God's kingdom. So God has given us time, and he's given us resources, maybe spiritual gifts, money, to use in any way we please. So we can use these to really please ourselves and, and indulge in our own self and our own lives, or we can use these to edify others and glorify God while we do so. So we saw in the parable of talents that one man, he took his one talent, and what did he do? Turned it into ten. And then another man took his one talent and turned it into five. And then there was the last man, and he took his talent, and what did he do with it? He hid it away, and he did nothing with it. So I ask her, are you that last man? Have you squandered your time on this earth to further God's kingdom in your life? So from this parable, we see that the judgment seat is for rewards as these first two men are given authority over the number of cities in which their talents return for them. Ten cities for the one and five for the other. Yet we also see that at the judgment seat, Christ will determine who truly is following him and who is not. Who made investments into furthering the kingdom and who did not? And as we know, faith without works is dead and the only eternal evidence of our invisible faith is our works on this earth. How we treat others and our obedience to God. Now what did Jesus say to this last man? In the parallel story in Matthew, he says this. He says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A complimentary verse to this is in Romans chapter 2, where it says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So we talked about this. We talked about the place of darkness, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be wrath and anger, a place without God, a, a place without love a place without hope. So I ask again, are you that last servant? Are you without hope? Now, of course, this does not suggest that we can work our way to heaven because I know that Paul talked about in Ephesians that for as by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. See, salvation is by grace alone. It is a work of God. Yet it produces works in us. As Ephesians goes on to say, it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. So you see, we were not just saved out of something, we were saved for something. 
And that is for good works. That is to shine and share the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. And we're going to talk about that more today. So through this chapter, we've seen so far that we talked about that God created us for a purpose, and that's eternity. And yet, while we're created for eternity, we're still on this earth. And while we're on this earth, we need not take our life lightly. We need not take what we do in the flesh lightly. We're here to please God here on earth and to store up treasures in heaven. So today, we're going to see how Paul stayed motivated despite strong opposition from the current leadership in Corinth. As he talked about before, the church in Corinth had been taken over by these false teachers, these false apostles, and they were attacking Paul's credibility and his character. In our verses today, we'll see Paul is really going to be playing this balancing act between defending himself and defending Christ. And really, it's a fine line, right? And it's a dilemma for Paul, and you'll see it phase out in this text. He says, if he defended himself, he he'd be most likely be construed as prideful to these false apostles. But if he did not, the church would abandon him, and then he'd follow these false apostles. So really, the very sake of the truth of the gospel is at stake. We'll see how Paul will defend his integrity once again amidst strong opposition. And however, we will see in the midst of him defending himself that Christ will once again take center stage. See, integrity is that sticking to that moral or ethical standards in our life without hypocrisy. It's practicing what we preach. It's walking the talk. It's really putting shoe leather to our faith. And there's a great quote I like. It's from a DC talk song. It's the front end of What If, what if I Stumble. And it's from Brendan Manning. And he said this. He said, the, this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that's very true in youth ministry. As I found out that youth don't want you just to tell them the truth and preach to them. They want to see you live it out. That is where real change happens. They want to see people really live out their faith because they've probably been preached to enough. They get enough information in our information age. They want to see real life. They want to see people putting shoe leather to their faith, people that will serve others and love others and live and be motivated to love others more than themselves. So today we're going to talk about three ways to stay motivated in ministry. Now first we're going to look at being motivated because of the character of God, because God is an awesome God. And then secondly, we'll look at how we can become motivated in ministry because of what Christ did for us, that Christ loved us so much that he died. And finally, we'll return to that eternal perspective that Christ is making all things new. So if you would, turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 5. So starting in verse 11, it says, Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Let's pray. Father God, 
thank you for your word and that it will not come back void. I pray that I would speak with your word and I'd speak it clearly that your Holy Spirit would work amongst us today. It would speak through me and speak into the hearts of everyone here today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be motivated for ministry. And it's such encouraging to hear the Krugers and uh, how one step of faith by the Bab community group led to having a wonderful family like the Krugers part of this church. And so, Lord, help us to be motivated by people just like the Krugers that are maybe next door to us, that uh, we work with, that are all around us. Lord, help us to be motivated to serve you and to love you. And Lord, let us be motivated because of your character and who you are. Help us to be motivated because of what you've done for us, Lord, that you died and rose again. Lord, help us to be motivated because you're not stopping there. You have not stopped the work that you started, that you are creating us anew, that we are a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. And so just uh, thank you for this time. May you bless it and may we grow and richly uh, in, in your spirit, in your name. Amen. All right, so let's look at the first three verses. And now these first three verses, verse 11, starts off with a therefore. And so if you've been with us in chapter 5, there are a lot of therefores. There are about four therefores in chapter 5. And so we must always ask, what is the therefore? Therefore, right? He does this a lot, and it's for practical application. Paul is a very practical teacher. And so we have to look back to verse 10. And of course, verse 10, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ and that that judgment seat is a place to be feared or better said, revered. It's a place of holy expectation for us as believers that we need to have a holy expectation for that time that we will be rewarded for the things that we've done here on earth. Now, this passage starts off by saying, knowing the fear of the Lord. And this fear described here is not one of terror or horror as that which we probably have for a terrorist or someone that is going to actually do harm to us. It's more of that of awe or reverence. In our culture today, we've tried, there's this big kick to make Jesus relational. And so a lot of people will call Jesus their friend, their buddy, their pal. And even worse, they'll call him their homeboy, Right? Or their homie. I get that a lot in youth ministry. Yeah, Jesus is my homie. He's my homeboy. Yet that's not the Jesus we serve. That's not who he is and the character displayed by him in the Bible. See, Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is Lord. He is king. And he's coming back as a lion. He is holy. He is just. He's a judge. And he is awesome. And many people in our society misuse awesome a lot. And we hear it a lot in youth culture too, where, dude, that was awesome. You know, like some guy does some gnarly jump and, dude, that was the most awesome jump I've ever seen. And we hear that a lot in youth culture, but really that description should only be used of God. God alone is the one worthy of that descriptor. Exodus chapter 15 says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. God is the only one that displays that description of awesome. And the next phrase says, we persuade men. This phrase is really central to this passage. And persuasion here can be translated as to induce someone to believe, as in the truth of the gospel. 
to try to get him to believe in the gospel. But I think this, this context here of this letter is not one of evangelism. It's more of one of trying to enter into a relationship with the Corinthians. And so I think a better translation of persuasion here is really to win one over, to win one's favor, or really to become their friend. And that's what Paul and his companions were trying to do. They were, they were becoming friends to the Corinthians. They were hanging out with them. They were sharing their life with them. They, share, they weren't just sharing the gospel with them and trying to persuade them of the truth and then leave. No, they were hanging out with them. They were spending time with them day in and day out. They became their friends. and So I think that's why we haven't been kicked out of our book club. We're in a book club and we're the only Christians in it. And I think it's because we're their friends. We hang out with them. We, we go for bike rides with them. We go to social occasions with them. We hang out with their kids and we do stuff, swimming and biking and go to events. We're friends with them. And so I think this verse really translated as, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, should otherwise be saying, knowing how awesome God is and what standing before the judgment seat of Christ will be like, we gain favor with those that don't know Christ. And the rest of these verses 11 through 13 give us three real practical ways to stay motivated in ministry. Verse 11 talks about having a clear conscience and to stay motivated in ministry means to have and maintain a clear conscience. This phrase says, but we make manifest to God and I hope that we make manifest also in your consciences. So this is really going back to chapter 1 where Paul talked about having a clear conscience in regards to his travel plans. Once again, Paul is saying that he and his companions have a clear conscience before God and hopefully before the Corinthians and all they have done in ministry to them. The next way to stay motivated in ministry is to not rely on the outward appearance, but on the heart, on what's inside. Verse 12 says, you'll have an answer to those who take pride in outward appearance and not in the heart. So to stay motivated in ministry, you must rely not on persuading people by flashy outward appearance, but with a beautiful heart. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with that strongman show in Fort Collins. And also you see this in the mega churches or the seeker-driven churches where they're very, they're very stuck on the outward appearance. Yeah, we need not to rely on that outward appearance, but on the heart and what's going on inside. And then third... We must not, to be motivated in ministry, we must not rely on the praise of man, but of God. And this is from verse 13, and I think what verse 13 is saying is that Paul, again, was kind of being accused of being a madman. I think these false apostles have been accusing Paul of being crazy, if you will. And it's similar to what the relatives of Jesus had accused him of being in Mark chapter 3. But I think what Paul is saying here in verse 13 is, if I am mad... It is for your sake and the glory of God. And so if you rely on the praise of man to keep you going in ministry, you're going to fail. And I think that's a reason why a lot of people in youth ministry fail. They say that the average lifespan or career span of a youth pastor is a little over a year. In youth ministry, we know that I've been there for 10 years that um, from kids you don't usually get a lot of praise. You know, they're psyched at, they'll say, okay, we're going on a ski trip. Woo, they're excited they're going skiing. Yeah, when you get up there, and they find out they're doing two days of preaching and sermons and stuff like that. Well, they're not so happy about that. Well, why aren't we going skiing every day? 
You know, and then you're up there like, well, the toilets don't flush. And man, it's really cold outside. And I thought we were going to go to Breckenridge, not Keystone and on and on and on and on. And so you don't get a lot of praise from that. So if you rely on the praise from man and outward appearance, you'll never stay motivated in ministry. I think the only thing that will sustain you is that right perspective of God. And when I first came to Mountain View, we did a series on the, the character of God and, and who God is and what he's done for us. That he's a God, a mighty, incredible God. And he's an awesome God. And that he's one that loves us and did so many spectacular things for us. And then being grounded in that understanding of God really helped me to stay motivated in ministry when only one or two kids would show up on a Wednesday night. That I knew it now, it's not because of the numbers and who was there, but it was because of the character of God is what I did and why I stayed in youth ministry. So we need to be motivated in ministry out of an awe of God and who He is. And we also need to be motivated because He loves us. And we see that now in verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So this phrase here, the love of Christ controls us. I think the word controls us here is better described or translated as compels us. The love of Christ compels us. And I think this love is not so much a love of our love for us, for Christ as really His love towards us because what He did, His sacrificial death on our behalf. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this love of Christ compels us to tell others about him. And what message do we convey to others? It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel that he died. And if you've been in church for a long time, you've, it's kind of become, lost its meaning really. We say it so much, yeah, Jesus died on the cross to save us from sins, yada, 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 blah, 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 let's move on. No, no, may that never be Believer, may that never be. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died. Think about that. Think about that. While we're still sinners, He died. See, God was not motivated for ministry based on our behavior. He was motivated in ministry because of his character, because of his love. God demonstrated his love for us while we're shaking our fist at him, while we're turning our back on him. He loved us. While we're still in rebellion, God sent his one and only son onto this earth to die a terrible death to rise again. So there's really two purposes for Christ's death we see in these verses. Christ died so that we might die. And Christ died so that we might live. So let's look at this first purpose. The phrase, one died for all, refers to Christ's sacrificial death as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of mankind. 
What does that mean, substitutionary atonement? Basically, it means from the Old Testament times that in those times, if you sinned, the animal had to be sacrificed. So every time you did wrong, a poor, innocent animal had to die. I mean, I think about that nowadays. If I had to go through that, it'd be a bloodbath. It'd be ugly. Man, it'd be horrible. I, I just was imagining that to this week. Like, good night. I couldn't imagine having to do that. But I think in some ways, it would give us a good understanding of our sin and, and, and really what the payment for sin is all about. That there had to be a sacrifice. But thankfully, we live in an era of grace, of God's grace, because of one man. And he, in Hebrews chapter 10, says, By one offering, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So because of Jesus, we came perfect and we became holy. Christ died for all. So what does that mean? What does this word all mean? Does that mean all mankind or just those who put their faith in Christ? Well, I think in this context, we see this all is really just for believers. If you take the statement by itself, one died for all, well, that could be construed as just all mankind, and a lot of people take it that way, that Jesus Christ died for all. But in this context, Paul adds the phrase, therefore all died, which draws in really many other verses of the Bible about Christ's death and the death of believers really alongside Christ's death. And one of my favorite verses is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, and it says, For you died, believer, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ died, you died with him. And also, he died so that we might live. So verse 15 connects this thought with Christ's death to our new life. Verse 15 says, For He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. We see that not only did we die with Christ, but we also now live with Christ because of his resurrection. And if you have time, look into Romans chapter 6. It really digs in deeply to that. So if you have time in community group or on your own, look at Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And then if you have time, go on in Romans chapter 7, and verse 4 really talks about that. Because we have died with Christ, we can overcome sin. And because we live with Christ, we now will bear the fruits of God's glory. So as I said before, we weren't just saved from something, but we were saved for something. We weren't just saved out of going to hell, but we were saved for a purpose. And we talked about this at the men's retreat and the men's breakfast, that we really are saved for good works. We're saved for good works. We're saved for a purpose, and that is not our own. That purpose really is bigger than life. And I think that's why that purpose-driven life stuff is so big nowadays, that it's something bigger than ourselves. And I think the baby boomers have really got on to that because many of us are in our midlife now. And many of us are asking these questions, these tough questions. Why am I here? What is this life all about? I mean, am I just here for to make money, to have a career, to have children? 
and then to die? Because that's a pretty bleak purpose. So they're asking these deeper questions of life, and what is the greater meaning of life, and what is it all about? Well, if you know Christ, you, you do. You have a greater purpose. You live for a greater meaning. You live for something greater than yourself. And because of that, you're motivated. You're motivated to love others and to serve others. And it's because of God's his amazing character that he is an awesome God. And it's also because of God's love for us that we're motivated. And because of his death. And also we'll see it's because we get a new start. That we are new creations. Look at verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, Therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I know every time that I go to a meeting or a place where there's a, it's just probably Sue and I, and it's a lot of people that don't know Christ, I, I start to get worried. I, especially in book group, I start to kind of get nervous. I'm like, wow, I hope I, I hope I defend Christ right. I hope I uh, say the right things and, and my apologetics is right or use the right scripture verses. And then kind of pops in my mind that, you know, really it all boils down to two things. It boils down to knowing just the truth of the gospel and talking about a transformed life, that I am now a new creation in Christ. And those are really undebatable, right? The gospel is undebatable. Christ died and he rose again. And my life has changed and it's not debatable. People that knew me before I was a Christian and after, they will tell you it's a different life. I'm a new creation. So we talked about the two reasons why Christ died. right? We talked about that so we might die. And then the second reason was so we might live. But this is a third reason. Another reason is that we can share in his new creation. See, when I entered into a, a relationship with Christ, I had to die to my old self. And become alive to Christ. Because Christ was crucified. I was crucified with Christ now. And Danny Evans no longer lived. But Christ lived within me. My life was hidden in Christ. And and I no longer live. But Christ, he is the one who lived in me. My identification was transferred from Danny Evans to follower of Jesus Christ. I no longer had to defend myself or worry about what people thought of me, but what people thought of Jesus. Many times in our book club, we there are comments, and, and, and they're subtle, and they're directed toward religious people. And I think of just recently, there was a time where one, one gentleman in the group, um, he's into meditation. We talked about a book on meditation, and that he's done meditation for years. But he felt like the only one that was, and this was early on when he did meditation, that the only one that really discouraged him, he said, was a strictly religious person. And then he looked straight at Sue and I. Looked us right in the eye. He looked me right in the eye to see what I was going to say. And so at that time, I had to think of myself, am I being attacked here? Or is Christ being attacked? 
Because if it's me, I don't need to defend myself. Because this isn't Danny Evans up here. I have died. And my life is hidden in Christ, and it's Christ who reigns within me. But if it's Jesus who is being attacked, then I need to make a defense. I need to make a defense for the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves that a lot of times. is Are we being attacked in our lives? Is that our own self being attacked? Or is it the is it gospel? Is it Christ coming out of us who's being attacked? So if it's ourselves, we need to let God. We need to let God take care of that. But if it's Christ, we need to address it. We need to defend Christ. So when we become a follower in Christ, our new relationship with Him brings us into a new relationship to the world and those around us. We no longer look at life the way we used to. You know, I. I'll spend more time talking about this next week, but really the essence of this is that we can live life with a smile on our face. We don't have to go around this life with our head hanging down, in gloom, and depressed. You know, in this world, in this time of year, you see a lot of people that are living in gloom, and they're depressed. It's a depressing world, isn't it? I mean, there's war, there's natural disasters, I mean, there's people being shot in churches. There's people dying all around us. There's people in financial difficulties. It's a depressing world. And especially during Christmas, it's even more depressing. It's even harder. Because this is the season of joy, right? This is the season we all need to be happy. Yet for many, it's, it's, it's a very depressing time. It's a depressing time of year. Yet for those of us with Christ. It needs to be anything but depressing. For those of us who know Christ, we really have to live with a different perspective. And we look at that which is unseen. We need to be motivated by God's character and how awesome He is and how much He loves us and how He is making all things new. See, Jesus came to earth as, as a babe in a manger. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, the God-man. God became man, the incarnate God. And really his purpose was to come to make all things new, to give you a second chance so that you do not have to be depressed during the holidays, but you can be filled with a joy because you no longer live for yourself, but you live for God. So if you want to experience that supernatural joy, that joy that surpasses all understanding, that joy that exists in your heart, not because of outward signs and things that are going on in this world, but that dwells richly in your heart, and Jesus is calling you. He's saying, come. saying, come. I am making all things new. The old is gone. The new is come. And you are here today by no mistake, and he is calling you to a relationship with him. To no longer to live your life for yourself, but to put your faith and your trust in Him and Him alone. And to not have your identity in yourself anymore, but to have your identity in Christ who died for you and rose again. So today we're going to have a time of communion. We're into this time of communion. And communion really is a time of reflection. It's a time of examination. And we talked about last week about the judgment seat of Christ and that we are not going to be judged for our sins but we're going to be judged for our deeds that we're doing here on earth to further God's kingdom 
So for you as a believer, what are you doing in your life to further God's kingdom? And a lot of times it's hard in our life because our lives are so entangled with sin. And so the table, the communion table, is a time to wash those sins clean, to, to come clean with God and to confess those sins before Him. So we're going to spend a time of reflection where you just need to go before God and have Him purge that sin out of your heart and your life and confess that to Him. And for many people, especially during these time of the holidays where there's a lot of fighting and and strife and things about difficulties with finances and difficulties in jobs and so forth where we really rub on each other. There may be some, some bitterness harboring in your heart, maybe some unforgiveness with you and your spouse. And you need to set that right right now with your spouse. You need to confess those things, maybe those harsh words you said to one another, maybe the way you didn't treat your, your spouse the way they should be treated. You need to confess those to one another right now or even maybe to your children. And this is a time we can do that. And it's such a beautiful thing to confess our sins and know that once they're confessed, they're as far as from the east as from the west. They're, they're forgiven. They will no longer be brought up. They will not be brought up when we go to heaven. And I just love that picture of the snow when we walk around, though our sins were as scarlet, which is red, redder than my shirt. They will be white as snow. And as I look at the snow, I just thank God that my sins, though were scarlet, They became white as snow because he shed his blood for me. So I want you guys to just personalize that, to do business with God, to make things right with God, and to make things right with others. And then when you're prepared, when your heart's prepared, and you've done business with God, please come to the front and and take the elements, take the the bread and take the cup, and and take those back to your seat, and, and look at the bread and remember that this is for Christ's body, that he pierced his body for our sins. And then take the cup and and remember that Christ shed blood, that he shed his blood for you on account of you. And then also we'll remember that Jesus rose again, that he died, but that he conquered sin and death and he rose again. So let's take that time right now.